Good afternoon. Welcome to New Life. Um, my name is Greg Howe. Uh, the way I volunteer and serve here at the church is serving on the preaching team, and so I am so glad you're here this Sunday. Uh, Pastor Rich is away this weekend, and um, I think celebrating a little bit of what God is doing in his life, so we're delighted to be here together. If you need a Bible, could you raise your hand? Um, one of the ushers would be happy to bring one to you. We're in the middle of a series uh, called Missio Dei, Following the Missionary God, and over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at um, what kind of heart does God want us to have so that we can engage the world well. That was last week looking at Isaiah 6. Um, we've looked at how do we be responsive to the moves of the Holy Spirit so that we're present in the moments and that we'll help support the movements that God is creating. And then at the very beginning of January, uh, Pastor Rich invited us to think through the life of Jeremiah a bit, right? And how do we uh, participate and hear God's call to participate in what he's doing around the world, not just here at church, but outside of it? And as I was thinking about this invitation over the last three weeks, right, I'm taking notes, um, I attend first service, I'm reflecting on what he had to say, um, the invitation, like, what will you do? Do you want to join God's mission? Reminded me of what happens at home all the time when I start to bake. As soon as I announce I'm going to make cookies, a cake, or a a tart of some sort, my children come out of the woodwork. And they're like, Papa, Papa, can we help you bake the cake? Now, help is really the operative word. And now they've gotten older over time, and so they're more helpful, but it goes the same way every single time. And I wonder if this has been true for you, if you've ever had children help you cook. It begins with the best intentions, Everybody wants this to go well, they're excited, I'm excited, and then flour starts to spill on the table, there's an egg that gets lost as it rolls toward the floor, things are like, it just becomes a mess, right? And then tempers flare, angry words are said, and then I have to go repent. <laughs> and then the children start fighting, because like, she stirred five more times than I did, and I wanted to pour the milk, and I'm just like, oh... And I wonder if God ever feels that way, right? Like, we're like, yay, send me, I want to help. And he's like, oh, because, right? And I wonder if we feel nervous volunteering to help as well, because we're like, I don't really know what to say. What happens if I say the wrong thing and make it worse, right? Or if we're like, I want to work on issues of justice and help overturn inferior systems, and what happens if we end up reinforcing the very systems we wanted to stop? What if... It's just so complex, we freeze, right? Like, if I give that guy a dollar, then he uses it badly. Like, it's just, it's terrifying. We're so afraid we're going to do it wrong. We're so afraid that it's going to go poorly, that um, it's hard to hear about the Missio Dei, the mission of God, and go, I'm in. That's why I'm grateful for Luke 10. And that's the passage we're going to look at today. Because Luke 10 actually shows us one of the other Lord's prayers, the other prayer he commanded us to pray. And I think it sets the stage for how we can engage. So let me pray for us. Father, help us to hear your word. May Jesus Christ's glory be our chief concern and may be attentive to the movements of your Holy Spirit so that we'd obey with joy and gladness and faith and hope to all that you call us to and all that you invite us to become. Amen. Um, Luke 10, 1 through 7, begins this way. 
After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. This is after the transfiguration, after a confrontation with demons, after arguments about who will be greatest. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them, two by two ahead of him, to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go! I am sending you like out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace be to the house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcome, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe away from our feet as a warning to you. Let be sure of this. The kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No. You will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me, but whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. It's a sobering word. Why is Jesus so convinced that if people reject his messengers, they're rejecting him too? I want to suggest it begins with this fact. God invites us to partner with him in his mission. He's already about it, and he invites us to join alongside. And the first step of that is for us to be convinced that God wants us to go where he's already going. Look at how this passage begins. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and I love that. I love that he appoints 72 others for this reason. The apostles have had this amazing experience, right? Particularly the three who were up in the mountain of transfiguration. They've experienced Jesus' power and transfiguration. And then the 12 have been hanging around with him all the time. Of course, they've seen his miracles. They've heard his teaching. They've seen his character. Of course, they'd be great witnesses. And Jesus goes, I'm going to appoint 72 other people. And I love the fact that they don't have names. Because compared to Peter, and John, and James, I don't feel like I kind of stack up in the same way and don't have the same confidence, right? Think about the characters we've already looked at in this series. If God appeared to me and said, Greg, I knew you before you were born, right? And I'm having this conversation with God. I'm like, I have nothing to say. I'm too young. And he's like, look, I'll show you this miracle. I think I'd go, right? If I were Philip, and I were being teleported from place to place, and I walk up to people, and lo and behold, they already have the scriptures open going, what does this mean? I think I'd approach him and go, let me help you, right? But that's not my experience. If I were like Isaiah and I were worshiping and suddenly I would see the Lord filling the temple and then seraphim are just whirling around, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I think I'd be like when I hear God go, who shall I send? Who shall I send? I'd be like, me, me, me. I'd be happy to go. Um, but I don't see the seraphim swirling around in heavenly glory. What I tend to see far more is me in the mirror. And I go, oh, who am I to go? Who might even volunteer? And I love the fact that the Lord sends these unnamed, evidently nobodies, and says, you go ahead of me. 
You go to the place that I'm going. Essentially, they're like a presidential advance team, right? So whenever a U.S. president goes to visit a community, weeks before that event, um, his security team, the Secret Service, is already there. They're scoping out the building. They're checking transportation routes. They've identified from the second the president's plane touches down to the venue and back exactly what's going to happen. Minute by minute, they've counted all the contingencies. Weeks before the president arrives, media and communication teams have already been there. If they thought about bandwidth issues, they've thought about how we get enough electricity for all the cameras and lights. They've worked out all the talking points. Weeks before the president arrives, food service is already prepared. They know exactly what the food is going to be, they, right? Because everything is being, they're being sent out to prepare. And Jesus does this with the 72, go where I am going to go. I think it's critical for us to realize God invites us to go where he's going, right? To show up where he is going to show up, to be with the people that he wants to be with. And the challenge for us is that so often we want God to come to us instead, right? We sing songs about God, come here to this place. We expect God to show up here where we are. And so frequently what God says is, I want you to go where I am going. I want you to be with the people that I want to be with. I want you to do the things that I will be doing and am doing. I want you to be where I am going. And it's great news for us because if we believe it's not about God coming to us, but us going to where he is, then we aren't at the center God is. Because you see, as his servants, it's far more appropriate for us to go where he's going than to demand that he comes to where we are. Those of us who have children know that this is true, right? When the kids are like, Mommy and Daddy, come here. I need this. And we're like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm Chinese, particularly no, 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 no. You come here. Where is God then? Where is God to be found? Where is he going? Who is he looking to be with? What is he looking to do? Jesus explains this later in Luke 15 in three different stories, right? He says, this is where God is, and this is what God is going to be doing, right? God is like a shepherd who had a 100 sheep, and he got 99 of them back into the fold, but there was one missing. So he searches high, and he searches low. He goes into the dales and the valleys. He goes up in the hills. He searches everywhere until he gets that one lost sheep. That's where God is going to be, searching for his sheep. God is like this woman, he says, who had 10 coins, but she only could find nine of them. And so she looks all over her house. She turns over the furniture, looks under the rug, looks at the corners, nooks and crannies. She goes upstairs, she goes downstairs, she searches everywhere until she can find that one coin. Where is God going to be? He's going to be searching for those who are lost. Where is God going to be? He's like a father who had two sons, one who went a long way away to try to escape his father and another one who happened to be really close. Both of them didn't know their father. Both of them thought he was somebody other than he was, and both of them thought they had it right. But for both children, the father runs out of his own house in order to pursue them, to welcome the one who had disobeyed and rebelled and to welcome him home and say, you are my beloved son. I am so glad you're home. And then similarly, when the older brother won't come back, the father once again leaves his house and says, you have everything already. Of course I'm celebrating that, brother, but you know everything I have is yours. And the father leaves his house again and he begs him, come home to me. Where is God going to be? Who does he want to hang out with? He's going to be where the lost are. 
He's going to be where people are burdened by their sin and don't even know it to try to awaken in them a sense of their desperate desire for forgiveness. Where is God going to be? He's going to be where the poor and the oppressed are being broken by systems and structures that continue that, and he'll be there beginning to overturn those systems, righting the wrongs and bringing justice and flourishing. Where is God going to be? He's going to be the place where the human heart grieves and is broken and is in need of comfort. Do you want to know God's power? Do you want to know God's presence? Do you want to sense his purposes? Then go where God is going. Get involved with what he's already doing. Show up where God already is, and then you're going to see him at work. You'll see him in his majesty, his glory, and his love. Then we're going to know him intimately. This is what Rich was trying to talk about two weeks ago when he was teaching about Jeremiah. He said, we have to abandon a temple spirituality where we assume God only meets us when we're gathered together. And it is true, and it is sweet, and worship is wonderful, but God cannot be bounded by the four walls of this room or the 90 minutes a week that we give him here, right? He's about and at work 24-7, 365 days a year in every geography, county, neighborhood, and office block and neighborhood apartment. God is already there. And he's inviting us, come out of the places where you're comfortable into the places where I'm at work and participate with me. What strikes me about this invitation is if we follow God to where he is, it's not necessarily a safe destination. Look at how Jesus describes it. He says, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road, but wherever you go, trust that I will provide and take and receive whatever is given to you. I don't like this part. Because really, I want to be sent out like a lamb among the other sheep, right? I want the, I want the shepherd to find me like, oh, poor little lamb, come here and hang out with the rest of the flock. They're lovely sheep. They smell a little bit, but they're fellow sheep. Hang out and enjoy them. You're all together now, right? I want the Lord to find me a lot. sheep, like, oh, look, little sheep. I'm bringing you to green pastures along living waters. You just rest here. Frolic, gamble, delight. I love you, sheep. Jesus goes, I'm sending you out like a sheep among the wolves. Jesus is actually saying this, I'm saving you to sacrifice you. I'm sending you to sanctify you. Because when you go out to places of danger where you have nothing that you can provide of your own, you're going to discover that I'm powerful. When you go out there and you don't bring coat, bag, or sandals, you bring nothing, you're going to find out that I provide and I am trustworthy. When you go to the places that you're scared and you aren't sure you have capacity, capability, the smarts, the wisdom, or the skills or expertise, you're going to find I am enough. And that's what is the good news. The world is not looking for smarter people or more compassionate people. They're looking for God people. People in whose presence they go, there is no explanation for what you just did, said, or accomplished than the fact that the Lord God Almighty is at work. Because otherwise, they just think, whoa, what smart people you are. And then the glory goes to us rather than to God. Jesus strips away our power, our prestige, and our control by saying, bring nothing so that you find I am everything. Bring, and the problem for us, right, is when we go on journeys, we like to bring stuff and a little bit more. So I don't, like, I don't know, I travel a lot for work. I pack my suitcase with what I need, and then I pack a little extra, 
right? Like I pack the minimal clothes I need, then I slip in one extra thing just in case something gets dirty or I need to change my mind. I pack my backpack with the papers and I need, and I slip in a little food as if I've ever starved one day in my life. But there's going to be a granola bar or a little chocolate to get me through the day, right? I make sure I have enough money in my wallet for all the planned expenses and just a little bit more just in case so I don't have to experience risk or loss or need faith. And Jesus says, bring nothing. Trust me, because the resources you need are already there. I will provide them, not you. I will show you people that I'm mighty, not you. I will give you the words you need when you need them so that you have the privilege and the delight of knowing I could never have come up with that. That was the Holy Spirit. And isn't that what we want in the end? We don't really need to walk through the day like, I am so much smarter than I thought. What I really long for when I walk through the day is, I heard the Holy Spirit and I was obedient. And in his miraculous grace, he used me. Jesus invites us to go where he's going in a way that's unsafe. He also invites us to see what he's seeing. Look at the next line. He says, he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I wonder how many of us really believe Jesus is lying. I know it's rude to say that. We shouldn't say that at church. But I wonder how many of us really think Jesus is lying when he says the harvest is plentiful. Because I think for most of us, we actually don't believe him. We actually think, oh, my little remote control is dead. But that's okay. We'll figure that out. I probably flipped it off. And now I'm extroverting and telling you. Oh, there we go. Or maybe they're doing it from behind. We'll see. <laughs> I wonder, though, how many of us think when we look um, at a family member that we've struggled with for years, do we really believe that the harvest is plentiful? Or do you believe hearts are hardened? When you think about your neighborhood or your office, how many of you think, oh, the Lord is so at work here, I can see it? Or do you think, I've never met a more closed group of people in my life? When you look at the injustices that our world struggles with, do you think this could be changed? Or do you think this is always going to be what it's like? And there's no hope at all, right? Do we believe that the harvest is plentiful, like Jesus said, or do we doubt because imagine if we could see what Jesus sees. Imagine if we had the eyes to see as Jesus sees that in every one of those relationships, he's already at work. His Holy Spirit is beginning um, his ministry, right? If we believe that in our offices, in our neighborhoods, in our country, in our world, with all of its division and turmoil and strife and hatred, God is actually at work. If we actually believe as Mary prayed when the birth of Jesus was announced, and as the church has prayed ever since, we actually believe the systems which oppress people will be taken down, and those who've been oppressed will be lifted up, and good news will be experienced by the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the alien in our midst. Imagine if we could see how that would change our entire perspective on joining in God's purposes and God's mission. So how do you do that? How do you begin to see in new ways? I often think that some of the most important lessons we learn are the lessons we learn when we're young. Do you remember a certain song in um, Sunday school if you grew up at church? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. 
So be careful, little eyes, what you see, right? And it keeps going, go, be careful, little ears, what you hear, and you, right? And I'll admit, when I grew up at my church, the way it was really taught was this, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see, you shouldn't be watching that. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear, you shouldn't be listening to that kind of music or that kind of talk, right? For the Father up above, he's looking down in love, like he's like the evil Santa, I saw you see that. So be careful, little eyes, what you see, right? But imagine if it were different. Richard Mao was the president of Fuller Seminary, and he was in Haiti many years ago, and he heard um, these little children at um, one of the churches sing that song, and he said, for the first time in my life, I heard it differently. What happens if it was God actually urging us, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see? Will you see the things that I see? Will you look for the things I look for? Will you choose to look at things that are disturbing to you or depressing to you or dis- right, um, discouraging, but instead choose to look because these are people I love and a world I care for. Will you confront reality like I confront reality? Right? Will you hear, O oh little ears, what I hear? Will you listen to the cries for help and for salvation and for relief and pay attention to them rather than putting in some earbuds and listening to the music that you like, which soothes your soul, soothes your soul, but leaves you completely anesthetized to the actual needs of the world? Will you touch the things I touch, the broken bodies, the wounded world that we have, so that my healing hands and presence will be felt there, rather than keeping your hands all pristine and clean? Urban missiologist Gary Nelson once said, why is it that we as a church, when we see promiscuity, only see lust and never loneliness? What happens if we were to look at every protest Right, as not just angry people who may suddenly turn violent, but people, however imperfectly, longing and demanding that God's kingdom come and God's will be done. That, right, acts of righteousness would be experienced by everybody in the world. That systems and structures would help people flourish rather than oppress them. That people would be allowed to express who God has made them to be for God's glory and human flourishing rather than seeing them as a mere commodity on which we can make a profit. What happens if we were able to see every workaholic in New York, can you think of one, as somebody who is desperately longing for meaning and purpose and seeking validation rather than just being the driven stereotype of a culture that we have here? Can you think of anybody who's a little embittered here in New York City? What happens if we were able to imagine them not just as a shriveled up, angry person, but somebody who's literally starving to death for grace and mercy to be experienced and expressed in their own life? Do you see how suddenly we would see that doors are not closed, but instead gates are swinging wide open? Right? Do you see how if we could see with new eyes, if we could see like Jesus sees, we'd actually begin to believe that the harvest field is plentiful. And I think if we did that, then suddenly we'd be eager to join in God's mission. I was meeting with um, a pastor who's also a professor at a university a couple years ago. You see, his child wanted to come on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, the ministry I work with. It's a ministry to college and university students. And so normally I would have thought a pastor who works at the university would love for their child to be on staff with university, but this pastor professor was really concerned and actually very opposed. So I flew out to meet with him because I really wanted his child to come on staff. So um, 
I also had the weird experience of the fact that this pastor professor was actually just about my age, and I felt so old suddenly. But um, because he and I were at the same university just like two or three years apart, like we were peers. I was like, oh, this is so new. <laughs> um, anyways, we were talking, and he said, don't you see how hard the university is? He said, I'm a professor I work here, and I'm a pastor. I see what's going on here. Don't you know that so many of the faculty actually don't respect or like Christians? Several of the people in my own department delight in tearing apart the faith of students who come in who declare themselves to be Christians. Don't you see that? I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Don't I know that. And he goes, don't you know what students are like nowadays? They're relativistic. Do you know the kind of terrible things that they're doing to one another and with one another in the dorms and the things that they do in the hallways and the ways that they study? And don't, I mean, they're, they're, they're terrible. Don't you know that? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know, I know. And he's like, and don't you see the way that the university itself works? We've reduced these people to tuition-paying units. We just want their money. We're preparing for their jobs. We're never even helping them ask the questions about who are you? What is the world about? And what are you going to do to contribute to it? The entire system strips them of the ability to think and to reflect on what it means to be involved in mission, much less purpose. Don't you see that? Don't you know? I'm like, oh yeah, totally, totally know that. He's like, in this world of darkness here at the university where doors are closed, where people are hardened, they're debauched and they're purposeless, why would you send somebody to work at the university as a missionary. Why, like, why would you do that? It seems like an impossibly hard mission field and the doors are closed. I'm like, oh yeah, I could totally see that. I said, but you know, here's the difference. I think you're looking at the university like a pastor. You're seeing these individual sheep go in and you desperately want to snatch them back out because you think there's somewhere safe for them. I said, your child and I believe what Jesus said in Luke 10 the harvest field is plentiful. We look at the university as missionaries. Those angry faculty who don't love Christians, they desperately need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. They need to be transformed so they equip students to engage the deepest, hardest issues of the world with hope, joy, and a sense that God is making all things new. You know those really debauched students? I know them. I see them. I've prayed with them. And they need the good news of a Savior who forgives sin. They need to know that the Holy Spirit can come in and transform lives, and I believe the Holy Spirit's about doing that already. We've seen more conversions in the last year than at any time in our history. I believe God is at work. You know, that university system that you think is closed, I believe it could be called to its higher purposes. I still think the university is better equipped than any institution to train, to train change agents who could rectify systemic injustice because they're going to be the lawmakers and professors and teachers and doctors and lawyers and um, homemakers that shape our communities. Where you see closed doors, I see open gates. Where you see darkness, I think somebody had better bring a light there, and I hope it is me. Where you see death, I hope somebody proclaims resurrection, and I hope it's me who gets the chance to say, Jesus Christ is the life, the way, and the truth. Right? Where you see the power of Satan, I see a stronghold that Jesus desires to take down, and I want to be at the forefront. Because if you believe that the harvest field is plentiful then there is nothing to lose and everything to gain and you get the joy of participating with God as it goes. If you would go where God is already going and see as God is seeing, you couldn't help but say, here I am, Lord, like Isaiah, send me. I wonder for all of us, 
what part of the field has God already called you and planted you in? And how might the Holy Spirit need to change the way that you see so that you can see the plentifulness, the plentitude of the harvest in front of you? I'm going to invite you to close your eyes for a minute, and let's invite the Holy Spirit to speak. Holy Spirit, I believe you've placed us in a location. It may be geographic in a neighborhood. It may be social in a family. It may be vocational in our jobs. It may be as part of a larger international network, but I believe you've put us there. Would you bring that to mind for us? What's the harvest field that you've put us in the middle of? I wonder for all of you what comes to mind immediately. And then, Holy Spirit, in your mercy, would you let us see what you see? Would you let us hear what you hear? So that even as our hearts are broken, we see and believe the harvest fields are plentiful and ready. Amen. If some place came to mind or some relationship came to mind and God began to give you a new way of seeing, how do you respond? Let me suggest we don't just go where he's asked us to go with him and pray as he's praying. I think we begin to do what he's doing, and it begins this way. Jesus then offers this. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is the other prayer commanded by the Lord, right? Jesus talks a lot about prayer. You know, don't pray like the Gentiles do, kind of mumbling and repeating yourself. Pray quietly. Don't draw attention to yourself. But only twice does he really give us language to use. The first set, obviously, is what we call the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, which we just sang today, right? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done. He said, pray like this. This is the other time that he gives us really specific language in the Gospels. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Why I love this is that if you pray this prayer, you're praying the same prayer that God prays, right? Remember last week, for those of us who were here in Isaiah 6, the Lord himself is sitting in his triune beauty going, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Jesus says, pray that same prayer with me, okay? The entire Trinity is praying. You can join in. Wouldn't you love to know that the prayers you're praying are actually the prayers that God himself prays? Like, wouldn't that give you confidence in praying for it? Wouldn't it give you some joy to know, like, I'm not just making this up. I'm not just talking into the dark air. God himself is praying this. He said, pray this with me. Wouldn't it, like, that give you joy when you go, I'm praying in your name? Because actually, you've used these very words, Jesus. Like, it would just be so satisfying. Um, And what I love is the way this prayer continues, right? Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers to the harvest field. So go. Right? You, be the answer to the prayer you just prayed. And I'm sure the the disciples are like, whoa, whoa, this was just supposed to be a prayer meeting, right? Like, I I wasn't planning on going. Um, But we tend to do that. We tend to separate prayer from action. And we go like, Lord, do this thing, and I hope somebody does it. And that's why our prayer is often ineffective and our action is often pointless, right? What Jesus said is this. You pray that the Lord sends somebody to the harvest field, and now I want you to be the answer to the prayers that you prayed. 
right? Wouldn't that be amazing? Because normally we do this, Lord, send them, right? Like, there's a problem in our community. Would you send Red Sevilla? Because he already works with the Community Development Corporation here at New Life. He's an expert at that. Lord, send him, right? There's a marriage in crisis. Lord, send Kelly or Jerry Scazzaro. They're amazing. An hour or two with them, things will be fixed. It'd be awesome, right? I have a non-Christian friend. Lord, would you send them one of the Alpha small group leaders? They're so winsome and so thoughtful about the faith. Just send them, right? Or there's a part of the world that we know needs the gospel. Lord, would you send their child to go? Because me and my children, we're busy. We have plans for ourselves already. But Jesus says, you be the answer to the prayers that you prayed. And think about how delightful and satisfying this is. Wouldn't you like to live life knowing that you were the answer to the prayer that God himself prays? Wouldn't you love to know that you're the answer to the prayer that hundreds around you might be praying, right? I work with college and university students, and we regularly send them out on campus to do evangelism and to meet new people. And the students are terrified, They're just horrified that they have to talk about their faith and meet new people. And what I remind them is every person you meet potentially has been prayed over by a grieving grandparent or parent who's longing for them to find Christian fellowship that will help them make sense of their faith, right? There's a woman weeping tonight that her child is lost and you could be the answer to that prayer. Are you willing to do it or not? There have been students on the CUNY system for 75 years working with InterVarsity, praying that God would sustain and expand a witness on this campus. 75 years ago, somebody was praying, you could be the answer to that prayer today. Do you want to take that up? And what students all of a sudden realize is, it's not me just doing it because I'm bold or courageous. God is answering prayer through me. He's answering his own prayer. He's answering the prayer of the community around us. And he's answering my own prayer. And I have the privilege and the joy of being used by God to be an answer to prayer. Do you see how that takes the fear out? It's God doing it, not me. This is particularly important for me because this is actually... um, what shaped my life. When I was a student in college, the Christian Fellowship, the InterVarsity Group, came to me when I was a sophomore and said, hey, we want you to be chapter president next year. Now, this didn't surprise me because I knew they had run out of other people. There was nobody left. It was like last Christian standing. And so they said, and they confirmed that. They're like, yeah, the other two people we asked to be president said no, so you're it. And I was about to say yes to that wonderful um, invitation when they said, no, no, don't say yes right away. You should pray about it which I thought was like just unnecessarily spiritual, because I'm like, you desperately need me to say yes, because you have no other options, buddy. But you can't really say, like, I'm not going to pray. So I'm like, sure, sure, I'll go pray. So I went to Cobgate, which is the picture you see there. It's the main entrance to the university. And um, I began to pray for people as they walked through the gate every morning for two weeks. I went out there at 8 in the morning and just prayed for them. I didn't walk up to them and like, hi, can I pray for you, because that's creepy. And um, like a little bit like, no. But I would just pray for people as they walked past. And um, I prayed for students, and then slowly my heart began to change, right? And I saw a student, and I saw them as Jesus saw them. And I began to wonder, why is it that every Friday night they get so drunk that Saturday morning they don't know who they're waking up with? And rather than be like, oh, I can't believe they do that, I began to wonder, what deep pain has she experienced in her life that she has to anesthetize herself with alcohol to get through the week? I began to see university faculty members, right? They seem all important and powerful when you're a student because they're like, I control your future. I can give you a grade. And as I prayed for them, I began to think and began to see them through God's eyes. And all of a sudden, I realized these people were terrified. 
They weren't sure they were going to have funding for their next grant, so they didn't know if they would have a salary. They weren't sure that their research area had any meaning at all. Like They're like, I've been studying diatoms, this one kind of diatom for 20 years. Less than 50 people know what they're doing, and they've committed their life to that, and they're wondering if they have significance and meaning. And all of a sudden, I saw faculty in a completely different way. I saw, um, I first time saw, right, janitors and secretaries, people who are otherwise invisible to most students unless we need them for something, and began to realize there's an entire city of people who exist just to help students get what they need done. And I thought, how is it that I may allow them to be invisible when God values them so deeply and loves them so thoroughly, right? Suddenly, the university wasn't this abstract place that I was studying. It was an entire neighborhood, a city, literally, of people who desperately needed the good news of Jesus Christ, who needed the Holy Spirit's presence in their life to give them new life, but also to give them a new hope and a new purpose and a new calling and a new love. I saw people who otherwise would have been ignored by the vast majority of people, and I thought, God loves them and cares for them and wants something for them. And then I said, yes, I want to be president of this chapter. And that started a trajectory that 30 years later has me here still working for InterVarsity because God broke my heart. And I want to be where God is at work. I want to see people as God sees them. And I want to say yes and be the answer to the prayer that people are praying. Brothers and sisters, when we talk about God's mission, it isn't this abstract thing out there. It's an invitation by God to participate with him right now. Will you go where God is already going? Will you be with him, with the people that he wants to be with? Will you see them with his eyes, and will you respond with a heartfelt, yes, this is what I want to do? Let me pray for us and invite the worship team to come up. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here at New Life that we would choose to believe that you do not lie, but you say the truth. The harvest fields are plentiful and that you've placed us in the middle of a field relationally, geographically, vocationally, socially, somehow, and you desire us to see them as you see them. Would you give us new eyes to see a heart that leaps and says yes and a will that says not my will, but yours be done, Lord because yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. I'm laying down my life. Let's stand and sing this together. I'm giving up control. I'm never looking back. I surrender all. I'm giving for your glory all. This passion in my heart is stirring in my soul to see the nations bow for all the world to know I'm living for your glory on the earth. sake of the world burn like a fire in me light a flame in my soul for 
myself for every eye to see For the sake of the world burn like a fire in me For every knee to bow down For every heart to believe For every voice to cry out Burn like a fire in me For every tongue to confess You alone are the King You are the hope of the earth Burn like a fire in me For every knee to bow down For every heart to believe For every voice to cry out Burn like a fire in me For every tongue to confess You alone are the King My children love to help me cook, at least when it's fun cooking like cakes or cookies. Here's the reality. It's never easier when they're involved. It's never cleaner or more efficient when they participate. But the great thing is because I'm an experienced cook and baker, I can take any mess they make and still make something tasty, delicious, and beautiful with it. Right? How much more so can God take our messy, destructive, goopy sort of mess that we bring to and go, you know what, I know you think it looks terrible. I am the Lord God Almighty. I can take that and make something amazing. Just do it with me. And thanks be to God, I'm not God. Because usually in the middle of that process, I need to repent. But you know what? Even though I have to repent and it's a mess, I can't tell you the great joy I have when my children say, Papa, can we help you bake? Because I know they want to spend time with me. They want to do the things that I'm doing. They want to be with me. And I'm going to teach them things they could never experience in any other way. It gives me great joy when my children want to offer their mess to me. And the same is true for our Father. 
right? It's not just that he can fix your mess and puts up with you. In fact, he is overjoyed when you say, Papa, can I do this with you? Can I go with you? Can I participate with you? Can you take the mess that I'm about to make and make something good? And the father says, I am so excited that you want to be with me and do this with me, and we are going to do this together. So brothers and sisters, we come to God with nothing, and he says, don't worry, I have it all, and I just want you to be with me. If you doubt that is true, then some of you need to seek prayer in the prayer ministry folk over on my right, or on your right. Others of you just need to come up for communion and be reminded you have never been so sinful or so helpless that God has not chosen to reach out to you and to say to you, I love you and I want you. And I need you to be my hand and voice in the world because it brings me great delight that you do so with me. If you need that reminder, then come up and take communion with us today. Otherwise, hold your hands out and let's come to God with all that we have not in the hopes of all that he has. Father, we come before you with empty hands. Um, hands that are prone to destroy rather than to build up. Hands which are more clenched with wanting to hold on to what we have than offering ourselves to you. But instead, Father, open our hands so that we can receive what we need from you. Would you use our complete lack of anything to demonstrate to the world that you have everything? Would you use our weakness to demonstrate that you are strong? Would you use our sin to demonstrate you are forgiving and gracious? Would you use our struggles to demonstrate that you will not cease until we look Christ-like? And then, Father, with great humility and great hope, would we go to the world with empty hands to say, here am I. Lord, send me to serve and to be your ambassadors. To you be the honor and glory forever. Amen. Blessings on your week.